read 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Through the war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all round me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a path because of my enemies, on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, I pray for Thomas as he comes up. Um, thank you for these words. Thank you for the time that he's taken this week to sit and meditate on these words to teach us well. I pray that you would um, fill him with your spirit um, and that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what um, you have to say through him today. I pray the same for Travis over in East. Um, yeah, thank you for the time he has spent as well. Um, and I just pray that you would be with him um, as he starts preaching now as well. Amen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Thomas. Uh, if I don't know you, um, hi. Nice to meet you. Um, I'm part of the eldership team in Village. Um, as you'll have guessed, I spend most of my time over with East. Actually, just we figured out before um, this morning, trying to figure out the last time I was here, and it was one week away from being a full year since I've been here, for which I feel both bad and terrified. Um, time marches on. Um, Hey, hi, I'm Thomas. It's nice to meet you. I haven't been in here. Um, so as you'll know, if you've been around Village any time at all, um, over the last few Sundays, we're spending all of the summer um, in this beautiful collection of nitty-gritty, no-nonsense, bittersweet symphonies known as the Psalms. Um, and our prayer for the season is that we would allow these words and these poems um, to become part of the language that we use in our walk with the Lord, and not just to be a biblical book on the shelf. I don't know about you, but my conversations with God can become quite monotone. They can become a little bit samey. Um, but the Psalms show us that this doesn't have to be the case. 
Our conversations with Jesus don't have to be dull. They don't have to be monotone. The Psalms show us that we have been invited into a conversation with Jesus that is simple, but is rich and varied. I'm convinced that developing a habit of praying, of reading, of singing, of meditating on the Psalms at this stage in our life, at whatever stage you're at, will help us both now, but also in the stages of life that are to come. Um, Bible scholar Tom Reich puts it like this. He says, the Psalms express all the emotions that we are ever likely to feel, including some we hope we may not, and lays them raw and open in the presence of God. In writing to a young church, in, a young church plant in the city of Philippi, Paul invites his followers uh, and followers of Jesus to learn to rejoice in the Lord always at all times. That can be kind of weird to figure out. What does it mean to rejoice always at all times? I suppose the thesis of this talk, um, the gist of what we're going to go through today, is that the Psalms are a crucial part of that. The Psalms teach us how to worship. The Psalms teach us how to pray. So we're going to try and cover generally what worship is, how it's important, why it's important, and then um, really uncomfortably show you a bit of a glimpse into what this looks like for me at the minute. Um, so um, before we go any further, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit who is alive and working to come and reveal this to us again in a fresh way. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Spirit who is with us, um, who is um, in us pointing towards the glory of the risen Savior. Um, Lord, through your Spirit, would you um, make these words come to life again in our minds, in our imaginations, in our hearts? Would you stir our hearts towards uh, towards your son, Jesus, again. Uh, may he be glorified uh, through our time spent in your word this morning. Amen. So when Jesus' disciples approached Jesus with a question, they, asked, they came to him and asked, teach us how to pray. And Jesus, being Jesus, taught them how to pray. And he taught them a prayer that begins with a line of adoration, a prayer of worship. And the line, as I'm sure you all know, is our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We don't use this word hallow very often, do we? If, like, if I literally only use it when we're saying this prayer. Hallow means to honor something as holy. It's a verb, it's an active verb an active word. So I suppose the question then I want to ask is why does Jesus teach us to pray in this way? If I approach someone in conversation and I begin that conversation with telling them how amazing they are, how wonderful they are, how incredible they are, I'm after it, one of two things I think is happening. I'm either after something, like I want something from them, or I'm getting the sense that they're maybe feeling a little bit insecure and they need a little pick-me-up, just a little self-esteem boost. So is that what God is like? Is that what prayer is about? Is that why we are to pray? Well, no, obviously not, because I think we can make the case that Jesus is the most secure person to have ever walked the planet. Don't think he was ever in need. Oh, maybe he was. Well, that's another, that's another preach altogether. In the Garden of Gethsemane, anyway. Um, so, but listen, in teaching us how to pray, Jesus is showing us that our prayers are a call to worship. I think it's really important for us to see that our hallowing for God, our, our hallowing of God, 
is a lot for our sake as much as it is for his. Now, obviously, when we hallow God, it's primarily because he is worthy of all praise and glory and adoration. But the effect that it has on us is very interesting too, and it's something I want to pay attention to a little bit. Because so often other things, other people in our lives, they are hallowed more than Jesus is. And so the first line of the Lord's Prayer is an act of redirecting our worship. It's an act of redirecting our adoration, of redirecting our hallowing towards the one who is worthy of it all. This is because worship isn't just a Christian thing. Worship is a human thing. To be human is to worship. In his famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, the late American writer David Foster Wallace, who wasn't known for Christian writings or writing on faith really, uh, he spoke to the truth that to be human is to worship by saying this. I think it's on the screen. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice then is what we get to worship. So worship is essentially this, directing our hearts, our loves, our longings towards the thing or the person that matters most to us. And God is formed this way not by mistake, but ultimately because he wants this place within us to be filled with him and with him alone. And so the case then for the Christian, that is, if this thing, this person, this that, that, we're, that we're hallowing, if that isn't Jesus, we will make that something else. Something else will occupy that space. And our hearts will be restless until we come to see the glorifying God and enjoying him forever is what being a human is truly about. Uh, Ronald Roheiser, uh, again, an American Bible teacher, says, Today, most of us do not see our restless longing as pushing towards the infinite, as, towards God. We've trivialized and tamed our longing. Instead of longing for the transcendent, we anesthetize, I struggle with that word every time, anesthetize and distract ourselves by focusing our desires on the good life, on sex, on money, on success, and on what everybody else has, whatever else we think everybody has. There's nothing inherently bad about these things, but if we define our deepest longings as directed towards those things in themselves, we will end up mostly disappointed and empty. Ultimately, our restless aching is a yearning for God. Philip Yancey pulls the perspective out from the individual to a wider kind of societal view, and he says, a society that denies the supernatural usually ends up elevating the natural to supernatural status. Only Jesus is meant to occupy this place in our hearts, this hallowed place in our hearts, because only he is worthy of worship. But what we do all the time is try to hoist or elevate natural things into a supernatural space. The list of natural things is practically endless. Popularity, progress in our careers, body image, the dream house with the dream interior, our holidays, our sex lives, our influence in the world around us, our sports team, the perfect partner, the perfect kids, whatever, the list is literally endless. And we hoist these things up and try to put them in this place, but this place that we try to put them in can't bear the weight 
And so what often happens is as we're trying to push these things into places that they're not meant to be, as we hallow our lives on these things, they either break our hearts or they collapse on top of us. And that's why I want to direct our attention towards Psalm 27, where we find David praying to God. If you're unfamiliar with David, he's a man who has seen a lot of success. He's a man who's familiar with power and with popularity. He is an incredibly rich man. He is a man who has had a lot of sex. And yet in this prayer, he confesses that none of it is enough. None of these things have satisfied him. But there's one thing that has And so in verse 4 of Psalm 27, he cries out, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For David, the one ultimate thing, the thing that is above anything else, is the worship of God and learning to rest in his presence. If the heart is an idol factory, in the words of Calvin, David has tried every single product on the production line and none of them have satisfied his heart. He's saying here that there's only one thing that's worth hallowing and that's God himself. All the other things, rest, joy, peace, satisfaction, all the things that we're longing for will only ever be fulfilled as we learn to dwell in the presence of Jesus, learning that his love is better than life itself. So at this point, let me ask you, what is that one thing for you? What is that possession? What is that dream? What is that idea? That person that you hallow above everything else? What is it? And let me ask, maybe a little bit cheekily, how is that going for you? Trust me on this, friends. Your heart will be restless until you find your rest in the worship of a loving God. This is why paying attention to our worship is so important. That's why I use the language of redirecting. There's something intentional about this. Because worship, while it being an invitation to worship God, it's also a confrontation. A quote that's been going around my head a lot recently is from the poet Mary Oliver. And she says that attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. So as we walk through our life, as we walk through every aspect of our life, you might notice that our attention and therefore our devotion is contested all the time. Probably right now. If not now, it'll definitely be happening on your way home. It'll be happening to you when you go to work tomorrow. It'll be happen the next time you, it'll definitely happen the next time you pick up your phone, the next time you're watching anything. It's happening all the time. The bad news on this, friends, is we've been set up to fail. Smart people have realized that hijacking your attention is incredibly valuable business. One study revealed that the typical Netflix user, this is in the US, watches 3.2 hours of Netflix a day. Even if you're below that average, the formative effect of being spoon-fed narratives, values, and plot lines of the world shapes our mind and imagination. Shows are designed to be addictive. And with so much competition, with so many platforms, with so many shows, so many options, nudity, shock value, and intrigue are at precision levels to harvest our attention. 
or take your phone, right? This device has literally been designed to frack our attention span, drilling to new depths, pulling apart our devotion. In his book, The Comfort Crisis, Michael Easter says, again, this is American, but I think it's probably very true for us. The average American touches their phone 2,617 times a day. More than 2,000 times. And spends two hours, 30 minutes staring at this small screen. Two hours and 30 minutes. I'm embarrassed to tell you how much more my screen times is more than that. I guess that makes me a power user. Maybe people who are on their phones four or five hours a day could be approaching 5,000 touches of a phone a day. There's perhaps nothing more devastating for our attention than the present and, and, and presence than that of smartphones. We're exposed to five, six, seven, eight thousand ads a day, according to modern studies. We are targeted, we are tracked, the algorithms are after us, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're being hunted by algorithms. All after your attention, after your devotion. So in big ways, and super small ways, rival gods, counterfeit gods, idols, attachments, they are all trying to pull your adoration, pull your hallowing away from Jesus, pulling us away from that one thing that David has found. And so our worship of Jesus over all those other things is a conscious and confronting act of resistance of turning our gaze away from the phone and towards Jesus himself and making his beauty and greatness more important than anything else in our life. With all of the idols and attachments and rival gods that are chasing after us as we learn to worship Jesus, and it is something we learn, right? This isn't something that we're good at really quickly. We're training ourselves as new creations. So as we learn to worship Jesus, we confess to him, we declare that there's only one thing we want out of our lives, and it's him. That is worship. But whenever I say worship, that word worship, what comes to mind? If you're anything like me, uh, you will think of that thing that we just did um, before I got up here. It's singing together in song, and we'll do that again at the end. And of course that's worship. God's people joining together in one room, uniting our wonderful and tone-deaf voices together. Um, I was just about to say, tone-deaf people, you know who you are, but I actually, I, you don't. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. <laughs> That's good. But whenever we join all these voices together, we sing psalms, we sing hymns, we sing our spiritual songs with one another. That's one of the most incredible formative practices in the church. But that set, that worship set, that music comes to an end, right? I mean, we're not doing it now. And it's probably really unfair to ask Caitlin just to keep playing over and over and over again to follow her, like to follow, it'd be unfair if I asked Caitlin to follow me with her keyboard, just like me getting ready to jump into worship anytime. That's not worship. So if David Foster Wallace is right in saying that the day-to-day trenches of adult life, that is the space where our devotion, our hallowing is most contested, how do we worship? In the gap between Sunday and Sunday, in the thick of ordinary, everyday, hectic life, through your job, through your um, marriages, your, your um, workplaces, in your relationships, how do we worship? I think the answer has to be prayer. 
worshipping through prayer. Prayer is the attention that we give to the one who attends us. It is the decision to approach God as as the personal center of our lives. And through our prayers, our conversation with God, we can approach him not as a man-made idol, but as the living, resurrected king of our lives. I'm convinced that our days, our comings, our goings are to be punctuated with prayerful praise. Plur peace. I think this is how we do that rejoicing always thing. So let's talk a little bit about how we might do this. I think I want to frame this in two ways. I think our worship, we get to worship through our prayers in two ways, through set ways and through spontaneous ways, through the fixed and through the free. So let's talk about this first one first, the set ways. As a devout Jew, Jesus would have had a set rhythm to his prayer life. He would have gone to the temple on the Sabbath, and daily he would have prayed a prayer known as the Shema. And he prayed it three times a day, and this is it. It's found in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's it. He prayed that three times a day. This set rhythm to Jesus' thanksgiving and praise, because Jesus had that, I think it's fair to say that we should think about how we might structure our days, our lives. Because again, if you're anything like me, you can't leave prayer up to chance. Because if you do, you possibly won't pray. Prayer, and especially worshiping God through prayer, requires a rhythm. It requires a framework or some kind of architecture. That means whenever we don't want to pray, that means whenever we don't know how to pray or what to pray, that we still pray. And again, we need to remember that learning to pray takes practice. You can't be good at it. You can't be good at this if you're not practicing it. Um, Many years ago, whenever my wife, Laura, and I were dating, um, we had a tendency to get quite competitive. So we made a deal where we would play each other at the other one's like sport of the time. So Laura really enjoys tennis, so we played a game of tennis, and then we played a game of squash, which is something that I played a lot at the time. Uh, so we had a good game of tennis. I think Laura just about beat me. I think it was competitive. Championship tiebreaker, something like that. Um, she won. Fair and squared, fine. Um, but when it came to, squ- to the squash game, um, so I looked up the definition of annihilate, and it's, it says obliterate or destroy utterly. I said this in front of Laura last week, so I've already paid the price for it, so they can get away for it again. Um, Laura was very displeased at how rubbish she was at squash. In fact, she was, she was so upset that she sat in the corner and seethed. And we, this was early in our dating life, so things got a little bit awkward. I didn't know what to do. She sat there. I swear I saw at least one tear roll down her face. It was the, the anger that was just filling her at that moment. She was incredibly upset that she wasn't good at it straight away. My point is this. You can't expect to be good at something without ever doing it. She'd never played, my, Laura had never played squash before, yet she expected to be an expert. Some of us have tried praying. Maybe we've been following Jesus for a while and we still feel like we're rubbish at praying. It's maybe because we haven't learned to do it slowly. 
Are we expecting to be at like fifth gear already whenever we've not put in place some foundations to think through about how this can help us through our lives? And this isn't to, to beat you down with this. I'm just saying that we need sometimes I think we need to give ourselves grace and think about this in a, a longer term, with a longer term mindset. Uh, Rollheiser again uh, says this, there is, and I, this, is, I, this is an incredible encouragement, there is no bad way to pray. And there is no one starting point for prayer. We all come at this from different angles. But all the spiritual masters offer only one non-negotiable rule. You have to show up for prayer and you have to show up regularly. I think this next line is really good news, especially for those of you that are totally slammed and can't find time of the day. Everything else is negotiable and respects your unique circumstances. So if you've got barely 30 seconds to pray in your day, or if you've got 30 minutes, or if you've got longer, the same rule still applies. You just have to show up. Even if it's just for scraps of prayer, you're invited into a dynamic prayer life with Jesus. A uh, little nervous to share this next bit because I don't want this to seem like this is what you have to do from tomorrow. But I want to share a little bit about what this has looked like for me over the last little while. Um, some more clauses. It ha I've tried a lot of different rhythms to try and make some, and a lot of things haven't worked. Um, life with young kids also adds complications. If you're busy in work and uh, you work long hours or you have to be out early, there are so many ways that things can get in the way. And I just need you to know that there is grace for you, there is so much grace. I just wanna share what has worked for me for the last little while as an example. I'm also not sharing this as something that I've invented. I'm praying in the way that I do today because my best friend prays like this. And I see his Christ-likeness. I see the fruit of his life. I see joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. And because this is working for him, I've tried it and it's working for me. So. What I want to share is my everyday, my mostly everyday prayer life. I'm not that good. Um, and I'm sharing again um, so that you'll not, not that you'll have to feel like you have to copy it, but that you see that prayer requires a rhythm, a framework, an architecture, especially in the thick of our days when our worship gets pulled in so many different directions. So for the last while, I've set my alarm to go off just 15 minutes earlier than usual. I get up quietly, not waking Laura because she's not a morning person. And I ignore my phone. I try my best to ignore my phone, but I fail at that sometimes. I go downstairs, I sit, and I take a few deep breaths, and I pray a prayer. Um, it's a prayer that's from this prayer book called Celtic Daily Prayer. I don't know what makes it Celtic. Nice. It's a bunch of prayers, a bunch of readings, and the Psalms framed in a, in a particular way. This is what's helping me. There's lots of different ways you can do it. Um, so, but, but I, I go downstairs, I sit, I, I take a couple of breaths, and I pray a set prayer. Um, last week in East, we used this as our liturgy. Um, and it's a liturgy that's based on the psalm that we read this morning, um, as well as the Shema and some other things that are thrown in there. Um, it also has a call and response um, that I just do with myself, and that can make me sound like I'm like talking to somebody, I'm not, maybe, that, maybe that's weird. I don't know, I don't care. Anyway, this is what it goes like. One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I seek, 
that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to hold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Who is it that I seek? I seek the Lord my God. Do you seek him with all your heart? Amen, Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your soul? Amen, Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your mind? Amen, Lord, have mercy. Do you seek him with all your strength? Amen, Christ, have mercy. And there's this declaration of faith. To whom shall I go? You, Lord, have the words of eternal life. And I've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ, King of endless glory. That's it. Simple set prayer. After that, I pray a psalm or two. I pray one psalm, a few verses. That's it. But what this prayer does, it, it baptizes the rest of my day into the worship of Jesus. It's not much, but it's my declaration of devotion. It's my act of resistance against idols. That isn't to say that I won't sin later in the day. I will. God knows that there's so many things that will pull my worship in different directions. But before anything else can really sneak in, express that my longing, my desire is for the divine. I'll, as I said, I'll pray um, a few scriptures. Um, I'll try to pray a psalm. I'll try to use a psalm and turn that into a prayer. Out loud, but also kind of quietly, because really, Laura's not a morning person. Um, and the reason I use the Psalms is that this is Jesus' own prayer book. This was his song book. The Psalms got so into the bones, got so into the language of Jesus that they would just seek out of, they would seep out of him at, his, at, the, at the hardest moments. And as I've learned to pray these Psalms, I've found that they start to put a language to my prayer life. Then after this time, I'll go about the rest of my day. I lean on liturgy and I pray the Psalms. And I need to emphasize this. I don't do this because I'm incredibly super holy. I do this because I'm not holy enough. Thing is, uh, I, more days than not, I don't feel like praying when I wake up. Shocker. It's not normal for me to roll out of bed and get caught up in heavenly presence and just kind of float through the rest of the day. Left to my own devices, I would not jump out of bed. I would stay in bed and I would read my emails. I would read social media. I would read the news. Eventually, go on with the rest of the day. I could like, you know, eat, get up, go to work, come back, hang with my kids, dinner, bath, bedtime, watch TV, go to bed. I'm an elder in a church, and I can miss a whole day without praying to Jesus once. I'm pretty sure that's functional atheism. It kind of scares me. So this act of praying set prayers, of praying the Psalms, takes five minutes of my morning. But it is me commanding myself, as David would say in Psalm 103, to praise the Lord, O oh my soul, all my most all my inmost being, would you just wake up and praise his holy name? I love that psalm because it gives uh, credence to speaking to yourself. Like we know ourselves to be lazy. Like I know myself to be lazy, to be tired and sluggish. But David, and David knows that too, and he speaks to himself. Would you just wake up and praise his holy name? I wake up tired and sluggish, but rather than wait until I feel ready to worship, I use fixed prayers to awaken my soul. Ritual carries me beyond tiredness, beyond feelings, beyond distraction. 
keeps me praying when I'm too tired to muster up my own energy. And there's days whenever I wake up in seasons of life and we're going through something tough, I find that even praying is a real struggle. Putting words to my prayers just is just hard. Maybe some of you are finding that today. I lean on ancient prayers. This is why I'm so glad I'm able to turn to the Psalms. To, to use language that the church has been using for centuries as calls to worship, as daily worship. Most mornings, praying is an act of will, it's a discipline. As I quietly, entirely pray aloud the words of worship, I am daily and defiantly expressing my deepest desire to worship Jesus. And this is where formation happens. The more we do this, the more this becomes natural, the more this becomes a habit. So I guess the question I ask, again, not to fill you with guilt, but just to, to prompt, to maybe get your imagination going, do you have something in place, a framework, some sort of rhythm that will carry you in the direction of your deepest desires on the days you're not feeling it? And if not, remember, there's grace for you. This is an invitation don't do this to be saved. I don't, as I do this, this isn't me being saved. Jesus has done that work already through the work of the cross. This is an invitation to get to know him more. If you're not doing something, can I encourage you to start building something? Have a look at your calendar. Pick a day. Look at your week ahead. Don't try start on fifth gear. Start small with like 30 seconds. Then maybe go on to one minute, two minutes, five, whatever. Find a prayer, find a psalm. Just use a couple of lines from it and just repeat it daily, day after day, as many days as you can. Allow the rhythm to get into your bones. Habits take time to form, my friends. And then you can get creative with it. Like go to nature, like go out into nature. Set alarms on your phone to disrupt your day. Have a look at what's to come in your day. What, what does your day look like? Is there like 10 minutes of something you can shave off? Could Netflix wait 10 minutes that evening? Just a few ideas. So that's a kind of fixed way of praying. And then there's free way, like a, like a more spontaneous kind of ways of praying. But like kind of in between that, there's this hybrid. If we're to learn to pray without ceasing, to pray spontaneously in the moment on the go, um. We're, so we're bombarded with all these rival gods throughout our day when we're at home, at work, whatever. And as a way to kind of deal with that, excuse me, throughout my day, I have like a few short prayers um, as like weapons. No, that's not a good analogy. Uh, can't think of one, it's fine. I have a few like short one-line prayers that are ready to be deployed at any time. Um, and the prayer, one of these that I find myself praying most often throughout my day is this. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In moments when I'm reminded of the Lord's goodness, eating good food, in good company, finding a car parking spot for a hot shower, for surviving a workout, seeing joy in my kids, for family, for whenever a government does something useful, for a good coffee, after living in Belfast for, in East Belfast for 10 years and not having a good place to drink good beer, somewhere's just open, thank you, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Anytime you see the work of Jesus in anything, thank you, Jesus, amen. Someone who's really good at this, and I'm glad they're not here to see it, is Andrew. 
If you've spent any time in Andrew Elder's company, even here, um, like on a Sunday morning, you'll hear him say, like in between like singing lines, listening to someone else preaching, you'll hear him say a lot, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Or if you're out with him, it's a really encouraging way. Just, it's a simple little tool. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just because it's simple doesn't mean it's incredibly effective, though it grounds me in the truth that Jesus is the source of all goodness. I want to praise him by thanking him. A couple other, like, one-breath prayers. Uh, have mercy, Lord. Jesus, again, teaching people how to pray, says, use a prayer more like this. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy, Lord. Whenever you become aware of your sin, whenever you're uh, daunted by how good Jesus is, by how not good we are, have mercy, Lord. Or another one, one, a one-word prayer, and you can, like, kind of sounds fancy because it's in Aramaic, Maranatha, means come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Whenever we see more bad news on the news, come Lord Jesus. We hear about sickness and death, come Lord Jesus. And then actual, like, the kind of more spontaneous times, I think one of the most important ways to worship through our prayers is by expressing our worship through our own words. Once we build these kind of rhythms into our life, what we'll find, though, is that our words become kind of fused with words of the Scripture. It's amazing. But we are, I think, I think it is important that we do find our own voice in, in prayer. I'm not sure if you know anybody um, who, when they pray, they sound totally different from the way they speak. Like, people have a prayer voice. Have you ever noticed this before? And I think there's a part of that that's good. I think it's good to come to God with reverence. But sometimes people sound totally different. I think that's interesting. Think about the first time. Think about your best friend, okay? And think about, the, if you can, if you remember, think about the first time that you spoke to them and what it was like then compared to what it's like now. Like, how do you speak with your closest friends? I think our conversation is meant to be something more like that. It's a conversation as to be laced with love. I think the conversation is to be quite intimate. And that means I think we need, need to learn to speak to Jesus with our own voice, our words, our cadence, our tone, our way of speaking. This, I'll admit, can be hard and uncomfortable. And in that discomfort, I think too often we default and like switch on some, I don't know, worship music or something. And we rely on someone else. We rely on the words of Hillsong. But Thomas, did you not just say to pray old prayers? Yes, I did. And that's fine and good. And it's good to do sometimes to put some music on. That's fine. But I think there's a layer of devotion that we've been invited into that goes deeper where we learn to express our devotion to Jesus in our own words with our own voice. If I want to tell Laura that I love her, I'm not going to go put on like, Luther Vanderos, and just stand there and watch as you know he sings with his amazing. Like, I actually haven't tried that. Maybe I don't think that would work. I think she would find that strange and confusing. I, there's nothing wrong with using someone else's words to express your love, but if that's all we're using, I think we're missing the point. I think the harder, clunkier, more vulnerable way that we pray with our own words, I think that's better. I think. It's better if I express my love to Laura, my wife, in my words and not expect it to sound like it's 
scripted from some rom-com. I'll stumble over my words. I can't quite get the right phrase in the right order. It's maybe like awkward and super clunky, but I think that's the way it's supposed to be because I think the expression of real love, of real love is clunky, but it's honest and it's real. Instead of me rambling, uh, the words of A.W. Tozer, I think, are helpful here. God desires and is pleased to communicate with us through the avenues of our minds, our wills, and our emotions. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the souls of the redeemed men and women is the throbbing heart of the New Testament. The continuous, unembarrassed interchange of love. That means there's no space that we cannot encounter the presence of Jesus. Our worship can't be confined to the music set here. It can't be confined to this building. Our worship can't be confined to a Sunday. Our worship cannot be confined to someone else's words. Every aspect of daily life is a valid entry point into expressing your love for Jesus through your prayers. Uh, I know Andrew often and some of the other, um, John T. often mentions this guy, Brother Lawrence, um, He's a monk from the 1600s, and he went about his days in an abbey just outside of Paris, preparing food, cleaning dishes, talking to others, sharing meals in the normal rhythm of his everyday life. And in, those, in this ordinary, everyday rhythms, he would find himself becoming so aware of Jesus and expressing his love through prayer. And he, in the, he like one book, and it's like a pamphlet, and it, uh, this quote is from it. I think it's on the screen. He does not ask much of us, merely a thought of him from time to time, a little act of adoration, sometimes to ask for his grace, sometimes to offer him your sufferings, other times to thank him for the graces past and present that he has bestowed on you in the midst of your troubles to take solace in him as often as you can. Lift up your heart to him during meals and in company. The least little remembrance will always be the most pleasing to him. One need not cry out very loudly last night. Isn't that really good news? He is nearer to you than you think. The least little remembrance of Jesus in the thick of your day will be the most pleasing worship to God's ears. Uh, let's pray. Uh, as we come into uh, a posture of prayer, um, a posture of repentance before we take communion. Um, let's just examine our hearts for a minute. Uh, what are those natural things that we are hoisting into the place of Jesus? What are the things that we are putting into the supernatural space that only Jesus is meant to occupy? There's no condemnation for you. There is forgiveness. There is grace. We are very quick to put other things in Jesus' place, but Jesus always comes with open arms, welcoming us back into his creation self. Uh, Father, we confess that we are quick to replace you as the hallowed one of our lives. We're so quick to worship counterfeit gods. Forgive us, Lord. Thank you for your grace in this. 
Father, teach us to worship you through our prayers. Would you form us into worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth? Worshippers who glorify you and who, uh, Lord, and as we do that, may we enter into, uh, may we enter into great joy. Father, may the gap between Sunday to Sunday be filled with prayerful praise. May our lives be filled with devotion to you. Uh, Lord, and we remember that in the encouragement to seek you out in the quiet place, Lord, we are not seeking our salvation in those things, but we are already resting on the salvation that you have won and achieved through the cross. Hallowed be your name.